It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. Montana's first trans state representative has been formally silenced. Representative Zoe Zephyr is a Democrat elected in 2022. And on April 20th, she strongly criticized a bill banning gender-affirming care for minors. And she had some words for supporters of the bill as well. If you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. State Republicans initially said Zephyr would be recognized on the floor once again if she apologized for her comments. A number of Zephyr's supporters took to the chamber to protest. But on Wednesday, April 26, state Republicans voted to ban Zephyr from attending or speaking during floor sessions she will be allowed only to vote remotely for the rest of the legislative session. According to the Human Rights Campaign, 17 states have passed legislation banning gender-affirming care for minors, at least in some form. And Montana could become the 18th. Also this week in Missouri, the state attorney general, Andrew Bailey, was set to enact emergency rules that would put significant barriers on access to health care for both trans minors and adults. But late yesterday, a Missouri judge temporarily blocked the action. Still, it's worth noting that in his effort to restrict gender-affirming care, State Attorney General Bailey cited reporting to justify his actions. Reporting from the New York Times. Bailey is not the first to do so. In states including Montana, Georgia, Nebraska, Texas, and Arkansas, Lawyers, activists, and state officials have pointed to reporting by the Times to cast doubt on and even punish those seeking or providing gender-affirming care. Care that every major medical and mental health care organization have deemed necessary, safe, and effective. Here's testimony from lawyer David Bagley in Nebraska in February. The New York Times likes to think of itself as the paper of record in the United States. So I took note when the New York Times published a story on November 14, 2022, which stated, quote, there is growing evidence of potential harm from puberty blocker. In February, a group of New York Times contributors released an open letter raising concerns about an alleged imbalance and bias in the paper's coverage of trans people and issues. We spoke with one of the letter's co-authors. My name is Heron Walker. I'm a freelance journalist, contributor to New York Magazine and GQ. Over 1,200 contributors to The Times and 34,000 media workers and readers have now signed the letter. Walker and her colleagues pointed to stories that misrepresented sources and used language likening transness to a disease. They noted a disparity between coverage of anti-trans legislation and thousands of front-page words dedicated to stories casting doubt and debate on gender-affirming care. In response, the associate managing editor for Standards, Philip Corbett, categorically disagreed that the coverage was biased. He wrote that the stories cited in the open letter were, quote, only a small portion of our coverage. Another statement from the Times appeared to conflate the open letter with a separate letter sent the same day by the advocacy organization, GLAAD. 
In early April, Heron and her co-authors released another letter, this time addressed directly to Time's publisher, A.G. Sulzberger. I sat down with Heron for an update. So the New York Times' public response to the letter since February has been dubious, I think we could say. There have been, you know, multiple efforts to both sidestep any kind of accountability, um, any kind of acknowledgement of the letter externally on the public facing side, as well as willfully conflating our letter with a similar letter released by GLAAD on that same day in February 15th in order to describe our letter and our critiques as a form of advocacy, which then allowed them to intimidate their own employees who signed on to the letter, um, as well as discount any of the critiques therein as advocacy or activism, which according to them, it runs counter to the efforts and mission of journalism, which also just fully ignores the history of uh, how intertwined advocacy and uh, journalism are within the US. I mean, like look at a figure like Ida B. Wells, I would assume that Times management would understand that history. Disentangle for me this point about being the co-author on the letter that, that you're referencing here and this conflation with the GLAD letter. What What's happening there? I think for the, the absolute truth, you would have to go to Times management themselves. But to me and the other co-authors of our letter, we did see it as um, an intentional tactic in order to sidestep the actual criticisms being made by myself and the other seven co-authors of the letter, as well as the more than 1,200 New York Times contributors past and present who signed on about the paper's ongoing anti-trans bias and covering trans people and issues that we face in the U.S. and also internationally. There are internal policies at the Times, as well as just like broadly throughout journalism, in certain circles, especially those that dominate the field, the idea of objectivity or neutrality is understood as an important pillar within journalistic practice. For many of us, we of course know that objectivity and neutrality are themselves subjective concepts that in the practice of journalism kind of only serve to ser serve the interest of those who are allowed to be objective or be seen as neutral in any given situation, often those in power, those who are wealthy, those who are white, those who are male, those who are cis, those who are straight, those who are able-bodied. And so those of us who say are media workers and produce work that runs counter to those hegemonic narratives our work can be dismissed as opinion-based, uh, which has some implicit coding as irrational or hysterical. It's a very yellow wallpaper, if you will. We, we did eventually receive a response from Philip B. Corbett, the standards editor at the Times, and we found the response that he sent us to be lacking, to say the least, um, and pretty dismissive of our concerns. He sent over um, uh, a list of more than a dozen New York Times stories from the last 10 years um, that he said, you know, demonstrated the fair and thoughtful coverage the Times has produced on trans people. And the coverage itself was great, which is something we acknowledged in our initial letter, that there is a lot of great coverage that is sympathetic to trans people and the material stakes of our lived experiences. But it didn't mean meaningfully grapple with the content of our critique, much less the ongoing anti-trans bias in the paper's coverage of uh, trans children's access to medical care, which is being uh, legislated away from them left and right, state by state, it seems. Working for the Times, either as freelancers or as staff writers, it really isn't so much about you all, right? It's really about the realities on the ground that are being reported in ways that you all are, are describing as at odds with how the New York Times self-presents. Yes, absolutely. 
One thing that we critiqued in our letter is the fact that the New York Times' coverage of trans people had been previously used in an, at least two different court cases with lobbyists and state attorneys general citing the New York Times' coverage of trans children's access to medical care in order to defend their discriminatory restrictions and bans on access to that care. And we saw that again in Missouri, the Missouri Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, actually cited a past New York Times article about trans kids' access to care in imposing this unconstitutional ban that then served to restrict access on that care in the state of Missouri. That is something that is not being fully acknowledged, I would say, by Times Management, that while our critique is of the actual coverage itself and its uh, dissonance with the lived realities of trans people in the U.S., it does then have a material impact. It's not just that, you know, I read this and it hurts my feelings, there is an actual ongoing legislative and judicial and medical impact on trans people, depending on where you live, because those with power are able to then cite the New York Times' coverage, given the New York Times' credentials as paper of record, to defend these really vile, vicious attacks on our lives and the lives that we're trying to lead. That said, I will say that I have noticed since about the end of March that the New York Times has been covering um, healthcare bans and other legislative attacks on trans people in a timely, substantive way that does not, to me as a reader, denote any kind of anti-trans bias, as was often seen in their reporting prior to that. For example, February 28th, the Mississippi signed a law banning gender-affirming care for minors. There was a brief mention in an op-ed for one line, but the Times didn't actually cover it till March 30th. Similar things happened with a Tennessee ban on gender-affirming care for March 2nd. No substantial coverage beyond, you know, a mention in an evening news roundup or passing mentions in tangentially related coverage until March 30th. March 11th, West Virginia passed a bill that would ban gender-affirming care for minors, and the Times didn't actually cover it until, I think, about two weeks later. But then on uh, March 29th, you see that Kentucky's legislature voted to override the governor's veto on a bill that would ban gender-affirming care for minors. West Virginia's governor that same day signed a similar health care ban for minors, and the Times covered both items on that same day. Okay, quick break right here. We're going to be back talking about New York Times coverage of trans issues and people right after this. Violent police raids on student protest encampments play out against the backdrop of a crucial presidential election. Could this be 1968 all over again? If every election is just like 1968, then no election is like 1968. Maybe this election is like 2024. Plus, what Israelis are seeing on TV on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back with Heron Walker. She's one of the co-authors of a contributor letter to the New York Times, focusing on the Times' coverage of trans people and issues. Have you seen impact in other kinds of reporting, other venue reporting that is perhaps doing a better job? I do have to give it up for, you know, other news outlets like like The Takeaway and like Them.us, like Democracy Now!, like Amara Jones's Translash Media, which have been covering trans people's issues in the U.S. in a way that did not need such a substantial course correction, much less, you know, impact state law. We have seen that the Washington Post um, in late March began to very visibly and notably produce a lot more coverage about trans people that's both sympathetic, understanding of our material realities, and also invested in letting our perspectives and lived experiences inform their reporting, which to me, again, clearly demonstrates a shift in resources internally. Though, of course, I, you know, I don't work there. 
you know, it looks that way as a reader. Like there was a study that they did that the headline was something like most trans people are more satisfied with their lives after they transition. And it spoke with, I believe, hundreds of trans people in collecting this data that then informed the reporting on a gut level. I assume that it involves more resources being devoted to meaningful coverage of trans people and transness and issues that we face in the U.S. Of course, I would, you know, love it if um, more of this coverage at Washington Post or other places were also produced by trans non-binary and gender non-conforming reporters themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's that's just an evergreen critique. I'll, I'll always say whenever anyone asks me anything tangentially related to trans people in media. Heron, are there things we should be watching for? Nothing is over. Um, this is unfortunately still ramping up. So we've seen even just in the last week, Florida has advanced a bill that if turned into law would separate trans kids from their um for if their parents, if those parents are affirming of their um, their genders, it's like another example in the ongoing history of American nationalist policy to use family separation to enforce some kind of fascist politics. Uh, you know, we've seen it being deployed against all kinds of marginalized groups in groups in U.S. history, past and present. You see the enforcement of this on Central and South American uh, migrants crossing the border. Um, you've seen it enforced on Black people in the U.S., Indigenous people. So that is definitely thing that's happening. But I will say there's also an interesting case in the Montana state legislature right now where um, there's a representative named Zoe Zephyr who is, uh, after speaking out as you know a lawmaker in debates over a bill that would um, target trans people, is now literally being silenced. She's the first out trans lawmaker in the Montana state legislature, and her colleagues are all keeping her from speaking in debates over issues that affect people like her. Kansas's state legislature is seeking to legislatively revoke the license of any medical care provider that has ever provided gender-affirming care to someone under 18. So, you know, puberty blockers, hormone replacement therapy, any form of surgery. And, you know, it's it's operating on this idea that um, this kind of medical care is, you know, it's like driving through the the drive-through at Dunkin' Donuts or something. It's it's you know, America does not unfortunately run on gender affirming care. Personally speaking, I think it would be fab if it did, but it does not. That is not the reality, despite whatever claims the right wing is trying to pump out through the media, through lawmakers. There's just a lot to watch out for. I hope that you know your listeners are definitely, unfortunately, getting prepared to keep like fighting this at the state level, school district level, at the federal level. It's it's just going to keep it's going to keep happening. Heron Walker, I feel like we have so many other conversations we should also be having. Heron Walker, co-author of the Letter to the New York Times, freelance journalist. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much, Melissa. And thanks for having me back. I really appreciate this chance to talk to you and all your listeners about this. The Takeaway reached out to the New York Times for comment. We'll update you on our website at thetakeaway.org.